Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on The Long Run is Abby Selnicker. She's a partner with Third Rock Ventures and the chair of MassBio, the Biotech Trade Association in Massachusetts. These are two major positions of industry influence, and I asked her a lot of questions about how her career path ended up in this place. We also talked about the changing of the guard at Third Rock, the prominent biotech VC fund, and her thoughts on the stubborn gender inequities in biotech leadership. We even got in a little cool science at the end. This episode was recorded at the recent JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. Now, before we dive in, a couple words from the sponsors of the long run. EBD Group is one of the organizations facilitating the deals that make the biopharma world go round. You want to meet investors? You want to cultivate long-term relationships with BD people at big companies? Or vice versa? Then you go to their conferences. Bio Europe Spring is the next one coming up, March 12 to 14 in Amsterdam. It's not that far off. Bio Europe Spring. Now, readers of Timmerman Report know I write a lot about new cancer drug companies. All of the CEOs I talk to know full well that they're in a race against time to obtain clinical data as soon as they possibly can. Investors demand it, and patients deserve it. Phase 1 clinical trials have traditionally been the very first time that data from patients becomes available. And let's be clear, data from patients is what really matters. Now, pre-Sage Biosciences is working to improve this approach. I have covered the company for a number of years as they've grown. They have been persistently focused on creating a path to allow researchers to obtain human data on investigational therapies a year or two before they normally could with traditional phase one trials. The business is simple. They are working with biopharma companies to use PreSage's patented device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. And here's the thing. It lets researchers assess several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. Now this device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more about this novel approach to obtaining clinical data faster, go to presagebio.com. Lastly, have you enjoyed listening to the first 10 episodes of The Long Run? Thanks for listening. Please leave a comment on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or on social media. That helps people discover the show. And if you like listening to these interviews, you will love reading the Timmerman Report. Individuals can subscribe there for $149 a year to get original, analytical, thought-provoking articles that I produce year-round. Groups that would like to obtain internal sharing rights can get a group discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to learn more. Now, join me and Abby Selnicker for The Long Run. I'm here at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference with Abby Selnicker, a partner with Third Rock Ventures. Welcome, Abby. Thanks for joining me on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So just to get started, who are you? Where did you come from? So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. I, uh, my father is a physician, or my mother is an actress, uh, had three brothers and a sister. So there were five of us in total. 
uh, and really at a very early age decided I wanted to be a scientist. I was in sixth grade and did some experiments in a you know, rudimentary elementary school class and just fell in love with science. Wait a second. Your father's a physician. What kind of physician? He's an OBGYN. Or was an OBGYN. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. And uh, your mom, actress. What what kind of uh, acting? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. She started off doing stage and uh, did commercial acting and then a little bit of film. Um, but primarily now she does, uh, or was doing until she recently retired, uh, more direction, uh, directing and um, mentoring, teaching, acting. Uh-huh. So how did, uh, how did you get excited about science? Yeah. Well, was, I was going to go one way or another. I was either going to go into sort of the, the more theatrical sort of side of our family, or I was going to be focused more on the science side. And I just sort of tended uh, more towards the science side. I, you know, I think that one of the things that's interesting is science is really very creative. People forget that sometimes, that it takes a lot of creative energy to think about how you're going to do experiments, how you're going to interpret data, what's important. And so I would say that I benefited from the disciplines that both of my parents had, uh, just took it more down the science path. So you didn't see science as some kind of rote memorization, um, long set of drudge tasks? No, absolutely not. For me, it was all very applied. Even when I would take math as a kid, it was going in and using the equations to figure out, you know, how many tiles you need to tile a circular table, you know, or things like that. So no, I didn't see it as rote at all. I saw it as incredibly creative. As a matter of fact, I love to cook and I always love to cook. And I, I feel the same way when I was in the lab that I did when I was in the kitchen. So... Interesting. So um, now, not to date yourself, yeah. but um, you're growing up in Phoenix. Um, you go to, uh, you pursue your PhD in molecular biology, University of Arizona. Uh, what years are we talking about? Yeah, here? well, so I did my undergraduate in San Diego between 76 and 80. Um, took a year off and skied, which was a good thing to do. Uh, and then between 81 and uh, 86, did my PhD. Okay, so this is, um, I mean, sequencing is around, this is molecular biology, the recombinant tools are all there, and industry is getting started. I mean, was this, were you aware of all this stuff? Was that part of what swept you in? It is. It's really interesting because at that time, if you even mentioned the word industry, people thought, you can't do that, you're selling out. Um, But if you think about it, Genentech started in 1976. And so when I was doing my PhD, I was well aware of the very applied approach towards molecular biology and biotech, and was just very excited to have the opportunity to move into industry. So from my very first day in graduate school, I knew I was not headed down the academic path. I knew that I wanted to take it into industry and had the opportunity even back then to do some collaborations with early biotech companies and early antibody um, development companies, uh, company Hybertech, which hasn't existed in a very long time, but did a lot of work with them even in my early PhD days. Wow, that's really unusual. I mean, most people enroll in graduate school and they envision themselves becoming a tenured faculty, like their advisor. Yeah, it's an interesting, most of my friends took that route that I was in school with. I just knew that I really wanted to do something a little bit different. I, you know, you make this choice. Do you want to go into medical school? Do you want to get your PhD? I really knew I wanted to be doing the science, but I also wanted to make a difference for patients. I wanted to see it turn into something for people with diseases. It was just that I felt like I could do that more in industry. So you got some exposure through uh, natural collaboration there with Hybertech in Southern California. Um, How did you end up at Genentech? 
So that's actually an interesting story as well. I was looking at postdocs. I was looking at uh, industrial postdocs as well as academic postdocs. And one of the um, fellows that was in our lab had uh, been collaborating with, with Genentech. And I'd been helping him with his project. And they, evidently the folks at Genentech said, hey, do you know anybody with this kind of a background? I was doing a lot of monoclonal antibody discovery as well as molecular biology. And uh, his name was Phil Scuderi, and he basically told the people at Genentech, you should meet this woman. And, you know, went out, had an interview. It was an interesting thing because I had not done a postdoc. And at Genentech, it was very academic. It was, you know, you sort of got brought into Genentech in the same way that you would be brought into a, a, a university system. And having not done a postdoc, I couldn't come in as a scientist. They wouldn't give me that title because I hadn't completed a postdoc. And basically gave me a couple of years to uh, effectively achieve the same type of thing I would in a postdoc at Genentech and then put me on the science track. Kind of a probationary period? I think a little bit probationary, but also sticking to their guns with what they wanted to understand that people were capable of when they came in to the company. Mm-hmm. But you had a marketable skill there, working on antibodies in the mid '80s. That's it was a very marketable <laughs> skill, absolutely, and it was um, you know something that, it, like you said, it was just heating up incredibly. But uh, early days working on growth hormone, working on TPA, working on gamma interferon, you know, even a little bit before the antibodies were really thought of as drugs, we were using the antibodies for a lot of um, analytical tools to help us characterize the programs that you know the products that we were making and the programs that we were pursuing. So you end up staying at Genentech about six, seven years. Yeah. Um, what What's the most important thing you took away from that experience? Um, I would say just about everything. You know, really, I would say my time at Genentech defined who, who I am, how I do things, and quite frankly, who I worked with, because I'm still working with some of the folks that I worked with at Genentech. Small um, <laughs> Mark Levin was one of the first project leaders that, that I worked with there, and Steve Sherwin, who I work with now, uh, you know, is somebody who was very active there. It was smaller. It wasn't even a 1,000 people yet, which sounds huge, but that's not really that big. You know, it was two or three buildings, and everybody got to know each other. Uh, but I think culture was a huge part of what I took away that if you have this, I would call it a high tension, high respect, there's a lot of scientific debate that goes on. And sometimes that debate almost gets personal, but you don't take it personally. You really just engage in it. It pushes the science forward. It pushes the decision-making forward. And then once the interaction is is over, everybody goes and has a beer. (laughs) So that was an important culture to learn. I think also science first, you know, there was never, ever um, a, a skipping of, of a step at, at, at Genentech. And that's where the quality came from. And I think you're still seeing it even as a part of Roche. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So was it then that you moved to Boston? So I left uh, Genentech to go to Genetics Institute. That's correct. And now this is something where you and I have connected on in the past. I organized a a reunion for Genetics Institute alumni years ago. (laughs) And this was uh, clearly like a very formative experience for a lot of people. I think you included. Oh, absolutely. What what was special about GI in Boston in the 90s? Yeah. So I think that when you go to GI from Genentech, the science was equally stellar and um, just a huge commitment to, 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 to the science. Um, things moved a little slowly, more slowly. There was a little bit more time to really consider why you're doing what you're doing, um, what difference it's going to make. Very patient-centric, very patient-oriented. And working on programs like hemophilia, 
gave us the opportunity to to really think about how the patients were going to benefit from it. So that was one of the things I took away from Genetics Institute. The other thing, it was in the early days of therapeutic antibodies. And uh, I really had the opportunity to work on a bunch of different programs there and very, very highly collaborative with the academic institutions. As a matter of fact, some of the people that I'm working with on a new company right now um, Larry Turka, Jeff Bluestone, back in the 90s, we were collaborating with them uh, around new antibodies to modulate co-stimulation, and it was really a close partnership. So I think GI had a, just had a very, very strong commitment to the basic science and to uh, translating into medicine. Did you take on a different role? Did you get a promotion or something like that? Yeah, I had a lot of great progression at, at, at GI. I came in as a director to lead their antibody technologies group and what we call bioanalytical sciences, which was how do you measure all the proteins that we are uh, administering to people and animals. And that sort of dual function was really good for me because it gave me the discovery aspect of the antibodies, but it um, gave me the development aspect of these um, sort of pivotal assays that you use in the development of biologics. So that was how I started off. And then with time, I took on some project management responsibilities, uh, was able to drive a couple of programs into the clinic. And then as um, you know, things progressed, took on more general ana- um, antibody and protein engineering technology development and ownership for a lot of, I would say, sort of early uh, genomics and, uh, and transcriptional analysis with um, an uh, Affymetrix collaboration. So it was a, it was just an e- increasing responsibility for a broad scope of enabling technologies, I would say. So you're layering on new skills, you're learning more pieces of the business, um, expanding your network. Um, these are all like natural good things. Absolutely. Learning how to be um, integrated into a larger organization when Wyeth uh, acquired us or American Home Products acquired us which also then gave me some exposure to small molecule development just by virtue of being a part of Wyeth. So, yeah, lots of great things. Um, so how did you decide that management was for you? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I think that once I was doing project management and running larger organizations and seeing how much an organization could get done, I got kind of addicted to the fact that you could really exponentially increase your influence by being in a management position as opposed to being an individual contributor or, you know, somebody with one, say, technology that you were the expert at. And so I just really enjoyed being able to touch a lot of, um, a lot more projects simultaneously and, and be more active in a lot of different aspects of the whole drug discovery and development process. What was the hardest part of taking on these additional responsibilities? Yeah, I do think giving up the lab is hard. Um, You get to be, uh, I don't know if everybody does, but I certainly got to be a little bit of a control freak about data. I really trusted data if I knew I had done the experiment because I knew every step that I took. I, you know, knew all of the risks that maybe I took in, in doing a certain experiment. And when I'd analyze the data, I could analyze the data within the context of all of that. Uh, and when you drop being the one who does it, but you're still very interested in analyzing the data or uh, 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 su- uh, you know assuring that the data is is good and solid and high integrity, it, you have to trust. And you know the people that you hire become that much more important. And the checks and balances uh, can be sometimes challenging because people think you're second guessing them, but you're really not. You're just making sure the data is 
the best it can be. <laughs> so you kind of had to rein in a tendency to perhaps micromanage a little? Yeah, I think that there was the risk of micromanagement um, in the early days, not because I wanted to be the one doing it, but again, because I got, I'd either get super excited and I could see experiments that I wanted to be done or, or the way that they should be done. Um, but also that integrity of the data that didn't last too long, though. I, I, I would say with time, I developed a relationship with the people who were doing this work and developed a way to really trust and um, hopefully then empower them even more. So you're in a couple of the industry's pioneering companies. Um, you you work at a big company, a big pharma for a while. Um, then you move around a little. You had stints at Millennium, uh, another startup, uh, reuniting some Genentech folks you knew, Mark Levin being one, Novartis. Um, but then you became an entrepreneur. Yes. Um, Talogen. So that was a whole new leap. How, how did you decide to do that. Yeah, I think that one of the things that happened when I was at Novartis is we did a lot of um, you know business development deals. We did a lot of search and evaluation. We looked at these little companies and understood, you know, the value that they brought into our larger organizations because for some reason they just little companies had a way of innovating that larger companies didn't. And I, I think I saw the kinds of companies that we were uh, acquiring and or partnering with. And I just said, boy, that's something I want to do. I feel like all my experience in the larger side, if I take that to a small company um, and sort of say, look, these are mistakes not to make, uh, but this is just being able to focus on really cool technology or really cool biology, take it all the way and really sort of own it. That just was seductive to me. And so I took the leap. <laughs> now, at that point, though, you're pretty high ranking. You weren't VP or SVP level? Yeah, I was a um, yeah global head at um, Novartis. That's sort of in that SVP level. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And you had done something like that at Millennium? I was also, yeah, I was SVP of R&D strategy and operations there. So people think you're crazy. You know, these are pretty good jobs. Yeah, I think that people... Um, some people think, you know, wow, you're giving up stability, you're giving up the chance of being able to run a big organization. Uh, but the flip side of it is you see the ability to really create something. It goes back to that creative energy. It's really hard to do that in big companies um, just because there's so many handoffs and there's so much, uh, you know, decision making uh, structure. And the opportunity to literally sit with three or four other scientists and say, we're going to do this, that's pretty unique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it turned out pretty well. It turned you, out excellent, yes. You, you, you were, um, I think we can say, a little bit ahead of the curve there with the complement pathway at Talogen, sold this company to Alexion for a decent return yeah. for the VCs. Yeah. So, like, suddenly now you're first-time CEO and, and you delivered an exit. Um, you, um, so, uh, what kind of opportunities present themselves uh, or, or, or at that point. Yeah, it, it is interesting. One of the things I didn't necessarily understand about the community is the minute something good happens and there's a press release and it gets, Xcotomy puts an article out or, you know, fears, then all of a sudden your phone starts ringing. So there were a lot of opportunities for me to consider, you know, other startups uh, at that point in time, not really opportunities in the in the venture world. That wasn't where I my head was, and it wasn't where I think people saw me. 
so I did have the opportunity to to move into another CEO role. And before I actually went to Telogen, I did a short stint working with um, Newbar and Mark on the foundation of um, Eleven, and or the founding of Eleven. And when I um, was working with them, the compliment company came up, and I just that's a pathway I just love, so I had to do it, <laughs> um, and was able to come back and and actually take advantage of all the work that they had done over a three-year period to, to launch uh, Eleven and had the opportunity to work with Mark and Newbar and a different group of VCs, a different technology. So I was excited to take that opportunity. So now this is uh, five, six years of experience at Eleven. You take that company public. Yes. Um, and uh, and then it, it, it hits the iceberg. Yes, it <laughs> That's right. Dark, cold night hits an iceberg. Yeah, phase three failures, um, not for the faint of heart. Uh, but again, another phenomenal learning experience in two ways. One was just what we did strategically to try and make sure that we maintained as much value for our shareholders as we could. It's really easy to just do a reverse merger, for example, which is a lot of companies do. Uh, we had an asset that was very valuable, but it was going to take too long to hit the clinical uh, proof of concept that the public shareholders look for. So we monetized that in a deal that we did with Roche, and we took the money from that, and we bought a small company uh, that was working on a phase three asset in bladder cancer. And it was sort of a little bit of a dark horse running, you know, running behind a bunch of other little companies uh, that we looked at, but it w- it felt like the right thing to do. And so that's a company that's still um, running a phase three study in uh, non-invasive muscle, uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and completely different thing than 11 used to be, but it's one more bite at the apple to make a difference for patients. Bio Europe Spring is coming up in Amsterdam, March 12 to 14. This is not only a great place to meet future partners, but it's a hip European tourist destination. Check it out, Bio Europe Spring. Presage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. And why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. It's in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. So you've run your course at 11, and then how do you end up coming to venture capital? Third Rock Ventures, I mean, at this point, you've got 30 years of experience. You could presumably do a lot of different things. You go back to a big company, could work in an operating role at a mid-sized biotech. I mean, right? Yeah, I think that, so for me, I, you know, taking a company public, having the failure of a trial, and then doing just an incredible amount of work to to evaluate what other opportunities might be out there for the company to um, form a partnership with, helped me understand the diversity of technology and how it's just exploded over the last five or six years. And I wanted a piece of that. I wanted to be able to work in more than one area. I wanted to really be able to think about how to apply these different technologies and and really make a difference in diseases that were sort of untouchable before. Uh, so I just got the bug to want to be um, a bit broader as opposed to deep. Um, as you, when you're a CEO of a small company, that's you live, breathe, and you know sleep that that technology or that product. 
So that was one one driving force. I didn't want to lose the ability to be build teams. One of the things, and you know, really our phase three failure at eleven taught me this almost more than anything. When you get the right group of people together, they enjoy working together, and they have a challenge that drives them. It is magic to to, to be able to work with a team that that syncs up like that. We had that happen at eleven, and I just said that's the one thing I can't give up. I want to work on all these other um, technologies, but I don't want to give up building teams and working with amazing people and, um, you know, sort of group ideation, if you will, and solving problems as a, as a team as opposed to an individual. And so Third Rock was a great opportunity for me because of our uh, company building uh, strategy and our discover, launch, build approach towards incubating a company putting it together, going in and running it for a while, um, and then stepping onto the board, it was sort of a perfect sort of transition for me away from the deep, deep operating, running a company experience, but still getting enough of it to feel satisfied. How did this uh, actually come about behind the scenes? Did Mark Mark Levin call you? Yeah. There were a couple phone calls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, try to talk you into it. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. It, you know, uh-huh. there was everybody played their part. I would say all of the partners played their part in making sure that I was, you know, considering the opportunities that uh, existed at Third Rock. I, I was careful though. I did look at other things. I talked to other um, funds. I, I talked to a lot of people from other funds just to get an impression for for things. I'd been fortunate in two companies to have worked with. Uh, a pretty broad spectrum of VCs. And that gave me an understanding of how different firms work and how different um, approaches that are taken being on boards with other VCs gives you that perspective. So I did my homework. It didn't take that long to understand that this was going to be the right fit. Now you knew some of the people, not just Mark. Yeah, but, no, uh, most of the people. <laughs> so, you, you, you know, they were investors in 11, right? Yeah. You, you knew this crew. Yes. Um, so that, I mean, there had to be some kind of comfort level there, I'm sure. But what, what was the hesitation? Uh, like, was just like, do I really want to be in, the, what's the venture business really like to yeah. work in? I think that that was part of it. I think that the other part is really at Third Rock, we sort of say jokingly, but it's true, organized chaos. Um, there's so many things going on simultaneously and there's so many opportunities and founders are in and venture partners and EIRs and so much going on. I was not sure that I had it in me to sort of work in, in, in that setting. And, but when I went in, in before 11, before I was out of 11 and before I came full time into Third Rock, I was um, in working on a couple of projects, just sort of getting my, my feet wet and feeling um, how, how it felt. And it was pretty easy, pretty quick to, to know that the, all that energy, even though it's on different projects, it, it comes together in one sort of set of, of core values. You know, what we're doing things for the patient. We're doing the right things. It's high integrity. It's, you know, there's got to be value creation in everything we do. And so I got comfortable with the diversity and the chaos, and it was relatively easy for me to make the decision. Now, at the time, obviously, Third Rock had uh, quite a track record. It had started a lot of companies. They'd gone public. I mean, there was a, a successful firm by most anybody's measure. Uh, and now, correct me if I'm wrong on the timeline, but you, you joined in 2016? At the end of 2016, that's end right. Of, end of 2016. And it was investing, I think it was shortly thereafter when a new fund was completed. What, 
How did that line up? About the same time. So um, I started working um, unofficially in the sort of June timeframe. There was one of our companies, Goldfinch Bio, which is uh, working in the uh, chronic kidney uh, disease space. So I went in to help with that one um, as a fund three company. At the same time, we were closing fund four. And one of the things that um, we needed to do within fund four is know who the partners were going to be. So I needed to I needed to sign up before that was closed. And so that was sort of the that timing did push me to make my decision. And that entails you signing up for the long haul. Absolutely. Uh, Because if you're going to be a partner on a new fund, you have to be there through the thick and thin for those companies to mature, which is generally seven to 10 years. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you had to really think, Do I, is I this did. really for me? I did. But I also had to say there was this unbelievable sort of moment and it was very comfortable. It was sort of one of those Zen moments that I sort of said, this is my last job. You know, not a negative, scary way, because it could last for 20 years if I wanted it to. But I'm not going to say, what do I want to do next? What do I want to do next? What do I want? This is, I'm investing in this. I am putting my heart and soul into this and both feet. I'm putting both feet in. And that was incredibly calming. It wasn't scary. It was calming. And so uh, that's kind of how I knew it was exactly the right thing to do. Well, and you probably knew that you weren't going to get bored, given the, the kind of incoming science and technology right. that Third Rock sees. Uh, whatever you're doing this year, it'll be different. That, that, and that's what I wanted. And I, and I knew that that's something that, like you said, it'll always be there. And you also still get to work with amazing people. And that's just so key to me. And that's something that going back to the Genentech days, none of us can do this alone. There is no you know, drug discovery, development, therapeutic innovation that happens alone. So knowing you're with a really great team and a team that attracts other great people, uh, I, I just felt really, really, really comfortable with the decision. Now, at the time that you were uh, having to make your decision, am I all in yeah. on this with the next new fund that we're raising? Uh, Mark Levin, Kevin Starr, a couple of uh, uh, public faces, well-known uh, co-founders of the firm, um, decide that they're going to, they're not in for that next fund. They're, they'll continue to maintain uh, their existing portfolio investments, hold their board seats, but um, they, they um, created some some shoes to fill. Yes, absolutely. Well, but but actually, when you think about it, they created shoes to fill, that's an opportunity, right? And I think that they knew that they had... Um, such a strong partnership and there was such unity amongst our partnership that they felt comfortable that that was going to continue. Uh, they know me very well. I, you know, worked at Millennium Genentech and, you know, other places. I'd worked with Bob. I'd worked with Charles Holmesy. I'd worked with uh, Craig Muir. Bob, Car- Car- Bob Tepper. Bob Tepper. Yeah, sorry. Um, really knew everybody very well. So I think that they were comfortable with me. I was comfortable with them. Um there were some aspects of just how the fund or how the um, firm is run that I was willing to take on. We brought in a new uh, HR partner with Sarah Larson, and that was a great opportunity to sort of have some of our approaches evolve. So I think we looked at it not so much as what are we losing, but what's the natural progression of where the firm is going and putting some new people in freshens it up a little bit. And they're not gone. They're still very much there. You know, mm-hmm. we see them, we talk to them, they advise us, they're part of the management company. So they're not gone, gone. They're just not actively uh, investing in fund four. 
Mm-hmm. The management company is quite important entity that exists right. over top of the funds, that's, which not everybody appreciates. Yes, that's right. Sorry, yeah, and it's um, it does provide continuity. There's a lot of we've always talked about Third Rock forever, and how do we sustain this? Um, just even considering the age of some of the partners, right? Uh, and so, forming sort of core values, principles approaches to doing things that allow when people come in allow them to sort of understand how how it is that we do things and why it makes a difference that also feeds the sustainability of the fund of the firm now you i believe are the first and only uh, woman investing partner at third rock that is correct <laughs> and this is an issue in yeah. venture capital uh, writ large not just third rock ventures mm-hmm. uh was there a discussion around that yeah, I think that there was, you can't, uh, you can't ignore it. I think that it wasn't a discussion that happened before I came in. It was a discussion after um, that basically with Sarah and I both being there, with Sarah as the HR partner and then myself as a general partner, we had the conversation about what are we going to do that's different because we're here. And we can, it's, it's really important for there to be women in the roles that you want to recruit other women into uh, in order to show them <laughs> that it's, it's authentic and it can really happen. And so I think that more it was pressure that we put on ourselves to, to really set the stage to continue to diversify at Third Rock and, and in the industry in general uh, and get our partners on board, which happened immediately. And I will say, it's interesting, it's more my other partners who will say, gosh, there's no women on that list. Let's put some women on that list right now. And what list? The the list of people who might be interesting CEO candidates for us or interesting board members for us or even eventually interesting partners for us. And so everybody has taken on that responsibility and um, it's authentic. It's, It's just, it's something that everybody cares tremendously about. If you don't take that first step of bringing in a woman and sort of demonstrating that there's an authentic commitment to it, all that work can go nowhere. But I think now with um, with more women doing it, and certainly within Third Rock with my, my, my doing it, it does give other people the understanding that it's possible. It, so this is not a lonely crusade? Not at Third Rock. It is not lonely at Third Rock. It's a little lonely at J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was laughing when I, when I got on the plane from Boston to San Francisco, and you see everybody you know on the plane, and it's it's actually kind of fun. Everybody's pumped up. They're going out to J.P. Morgan. I just was taken by how few women were on that plane, um, disproportionate from a normal plane ride because so many of the seats were taken up by people going to J.P. Morgan. So that sort of reminded me of it. Um, and then when you're in the halls here, it's a, it's a pretty obvious distinction. <laughs> do, do you feel like you're, uh, I'm thinking, I'm careful about my language here, but one of the guys? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know I think I mean? that's fair. I, I think at, at Third Rock, I do. Um, I there's I never feel put out in any way. And, you know, it's a people say, oh, is that an old boys network? You know, no, it isn't. Um, or if it is, I must be a guy. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't ever feel that. I don't. Um, Not excluded. Never Welcome. feel excluded. Everybody is. We're all extremely competitive people. Not with each other necessarily, but we want to win. I mean, we do. We want to do what's right. And we want the things that we do to make a difference. And so mostly we're just all on this team driving forward. And it, you're, it's invisible that somebody is a man, somebody is a woman, you know, somebody's 
older or somebody's younger. It's just the team that makes things move forward. And, and I can very authentically say I've been in work settings in the past where I did feel, um, for lack of a better word, a little lonely. I don't feel it now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, you're also the chair of MassBio. That's correct. And MassBio has taken up this cause um, the last couple of years, studying it, I think, at first. Try to get it, its hands around what, what are we really talking about here with gender inequality and, uh, in, in executive ranks and on boards. Um, what, what have you learned? So I, I, we've learned a lot, uh, probably more than I could even remember to say, because in our collaboration with LiftStream and the survey that we did with the local uh, biotech and pharma cluster uh, in Boston, we uh, we just got so much data, so much information, uh, both from the company perspective and the individual perspective about is this issue, is it true? Is there, you know, a disproportionate number of men than women throughout the entire, um, you know, sort of structure within the industry? And the answer is no, that at the entry level, it's 50-50. And so then what happens? And some of the most interesting things to me that came out were that women were actually saying no to offers. And that was stunning to me because you work so hard to network and get the opportunity and make yourself competitive. And then you're saying no. So the the research that we did found out that one of the main reasons that women are saying no is because they don't see individuals like themselves on the boards or in the C-suite. And they don't necessarily have the confidence or faith, if you will, that um, more women are coming and they're not just the token woman being brought in. Uh, And they don't necessarily believe that there's a commitment to the kind of diversity that they would like in the companies that they work at. So that to me was was a bit of a slap in the face. Women are saying no. And then I think that the other thing that was quite interesting was the level at which the women, the pivot point was happening. And it was around this uh, vice president, senior vice president level. So even at the director level where there's a lot of influence Uh, you aren't seeing the degree of attrition that you're seeing at that sort of point where um, women are either deciding they're never going to get the opportunity and they're going to go consider a career change, or they get the opportunity and they say no, (laughs) or they choose to go to another company that might be comprised of people who are more like them. So did you ever have those moments where you thought about saying no along your journey? I personally did not. I'm just being honest. Um, And I think it's partially because of the culture that I worked in. Um, And maybe because I'm a scientist also. When you're working in in a situation where everything's being challenged, because that's what scientists do, your candidacy being challenged doesn't feel odd, right? You develop a thick high. You, You do. You do. So I don't think that I felt it, but I can understand um, based on experiences that I have had, not that I ever made the decision not to, but I did have times where I asked myself, is this worth it? Is the fight that I have to fight worth it? Is the you know, behaviors that I have to uh, take on in order to fit in in certain settings, is that worth it? So it wasn't so much saying no to the opportunity, but questioning once you're in the role, questioning, did I do the right thing? 
So, I mean, I think there are a couple things going on. I mean, you're saying that there are women out there who uh, are ready to go to the next level, but they're saying no for one reason or another. So what do you do with that? Do you, do you tr try to mentor some, some of these women? Um, what, what's the answer? Yeah, I think mentorship is incredibly important. I think that, but not just mentorship from other women. I think it's really, really important for us to create relationships between um, executive, young executive men and young, young executive women so that they feel that they're part of the same network and they feel that sense of trust and community. Um, I think we need to do that a little bit more proactively, even before the opportunities are coming up for people, just so that it's there's on both sides this recognition that it's going to take a little bit of time to equilibrate, but that everybody's committed to it. So I think that that's incredibly important um, to achieve is is more opportunities for uh, you know peers of both genders um, and even other, you know, diverse classes of people to to really network and integrate with each other. True mixed gender integrated events. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned this because before I came here for this interview, I spoke with a, uh, a younger woman VC um, who was telling me that there is something like what you might call self-segregation going on. And that is she has her network of other women in venture capital and they share deals. They syndicate deals together. They're close. Mm -hmm. And um, she doesn't feel that same kind of connection with the 60 year old famous white male partner at, you know, big fund XYZ. Right. There's no, um, th there is no correspondence between those, those two levels. And I thought, oh boy, that's actually kind of concerning. Like, you might be able to look at progress on a chart and say, well, we went from 5% female VCs to 8. And isn't that like, you know, a little bit of progress and we're, we're, we're improving? But maybe not necessarily. If uh, we end up self-segregating and the men do deals with their good old boy network friends and, you know, we've got some women VCs that work together over here. Yeah. So what you're saying highlights something that's sort of one of my, um, you know, one, one last thing I want to do before I'm done is to see this change because there's been a lot of organizations built to help support women um, as they think about their career changes and they're, they're all women, all female organizations and it gives women a safe place to talk and, and network whereas they don't really have the opportunity in a lot of cases to network with their male colleagues. Um, that's not helpful. <laughs> it's helpful from the um, safe place and mentorship. It's not helpful from the problem solving. And in my opinion, we have to be very deliberate. We have to create settings and opportunities for men and women to be on board on um, panels together very deliberately say look we are mixing this up we are putting people on we want you guys to talk about this subject matter together we want this to be based on data and subject matter we don't want this to be based on the issue of gender diversity we want to talk about real issues and I think if we do that more and more and at smaller scales at larger scales but don't make the networking events able to segregate, really do almost contrive things to bring these people together and force them to have, you know, really productive conversations. It's, you know, there's these things where you do roundtables where there's a topic on the table and, you know, five men are sitting there and five women and let's discuss the topic. Uh, little things like that, I think, are going to break the ice. And hopefully as generations go by, it'll become a more natural thing uh, for people to do. But if we don't 
break it somehow, it'll continue because what we do is facilitated by our networks. They just are. And if those networks don't blend more, it's going to go on generation by generation. I just believe that. <laughs> well, that's a good goal to set for the next however many years yeah. uh, because it doesn't happen overnight. Nope. If, if you say, gee, I got to fix this next year, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> that, that, that's true. Um, so thinking long-term, as long as we're thinking long-term, what about the science and technology uh, really gets you excited when you think about 10 years from now that that's going to bear fruit in that yeah. third rock portfolio? I think that we are in many different ways interrogating cells at the single cell level, whether it be single cell genomics, single cell metabolomics, um, understanding cellular engineering that can be done, uh, I just think that we're going to learn so much more by understanding at the individual cellular level what's really going on in these diseases and understanding how you can use that data to then segment patients. We've done it genetically, certainly, um, especially in, in cancer, uh, but to do it in things like autoimmune and inflammatory diseases, to do it in kidney disease, to do it in cardiovascular disease, hopefully someday doing it in neurological disorders that single cell, the ability to interrogate at the single cell level, I think is going to just open up a whole new universe. So we start with the single cell, and then do we eventually like get to see the cell in concert with all the networks? Absolutely, around it? absolutely. Because when you can do the single cellular analysis, you can see what the diversity is. And in some cases, you're not going to see a lot of diversity. But when you do see the diversity of the cell behaviors, that will help you understand, okay, this is what a bad actor looks like. This is a disease that would respond to these drugs, but this is a disease that wouldn't. And so I don't, you know, we're not at the point right now where we can wave our wand and, 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 and scale that, but we have the technologies to ask the questions now, which will then help us strategize around how do we apply that at, at a bigger level. Well, you know, you're at this conference here and you're hearing the same thing I am about big data, machine learning, yeah. artificial intelligence. Isn't this amazing? And I, I mean, certainly I think in the distant future, yes. I mean, once you have the capability to gather that uh, biological information in the first place and it gets better, faster, cheaper, and then you can start layering it in the context, well, then computers can start doing their massive calculating power. That's right. That's right. And I think, though, one of the things that's so interesting is, and this is the machine learning and, and, and the opportunity to start with these smaller databases and then have them grow as scalability is enabled and then have them integrate with the literature, have them integrate with public databases, have them integrate with um, electronic medical records. Uh, but in a stepwise fashion, right? So that every time you're integrating, there's more learning going on. It's as opposed to taking on these enormous um, Atlas-like projects where you're going to sort of sign up to map everything that's mappable and then, and then what? I think it's better to sort of build it in a very deliberate way. And as it expands, you're going to find that the integration is a more natural evolution as opposed to a just giant analytical, you know, sort of challenge. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, when you look at all the array of opportunities that come across your desk, is what else strikes you as like maybe overrated, overhyped, uh, not quite ready? 
Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, it probably is some of the um, data, you know, some of the big data concepts, some of the, um, you know, using uh, information as therapeutics, you know, how do we uh, track people's lifestyles, their compliance with their meds, their diets, etc., and turn that information into a therapeutic approach. I don't, I believe it'll work in some subset of people at some point in time. It's just not sophisticated enough yet. And people are underestimating the simplicity. Uh, I mean, I mean, they're overestimating the simplicity of, of, of doing this. It's just not going to be simple. And I think it's going to take years to understand um, what's noise and what's real. Well, and medicine is pretty conservative field. I mean, the, the yeah. doctors are not necessarily the earliest of adopters, as we've seen with electronic medical it's, records and various other things. But the social aspect of people taking control of their own destinies, their the social networks that, you know, the websites, the blog sites, the people go on and talk about their diseases. There is some extent that people are treating themselves and deciding what to go to the doctors and ask for. So in, in some ways... I think there's going to be a demand for this. There's going to be the demand to, could you please just put that on my phone? And I just want an app for that. So even though the docs aren't early adopters, there's going to be a lot of pressure from the patient populations. And I think that's only one generation away. I don't, I don't think that that is 20 years from now. I think that's 10 years from now at the most. Consumer, it may be a consumer-driven revolution. I think so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Last thing I want to ask you, Abby. Uh, you say on your uh, bio on your website that um, you like doing jigsaw puzzles, but you never look at the picture on the box. Uh, and you've once completed a thousand-piece puzzle that was solid white. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Explain. So, um, so I don't look at the box because I want to use... Um, the shapes and the colors as my guide. I don't want to try and recapitulate something that I'm looking at. I want to build it from scratch. And so that's why I don't look at the box. And if somebody leaves the box in my sight, I, I get very angry with everybody. <laughs> and, and I will let my friends doing the puzzle with me look at the box, but I don't look at the box. So that's what number one. Uh, it takes a little bit longer, but it's really, really satisfying when you're done. Um, and the, the all white puzzle, when we were kids, you could only do a, the same puzzle so many times. So you turn it over and you just do it on the blank side. And so you learn to do it by just the shapes and not by the, the, the color. And I had, you know, been doing that on progressively larger puzzles. And then somebody gave me this, um, thousand piece white puzzle that took me a really long time to do uh, but it was very satisfying when done <laughs> interesting i mean I, I i think there must be a challenge there for spatial learning or some some kind of muscle you're exercising there it it, it, it must be but i will tell you that it, it is um it's got to be somewhat genetic because if a puzzle comes out my kids they're like dogs when you put the dog food down there's like everybody just runs over to the puzzle <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well and maybe there's some lesson here with your mix of science and humanities uh influences growing up absolutely and abby selnicker thanks very much for joining me here on the long run thank you luke thanks for listening to the long run a production of timmerman report pedro rosado of headstepper media was the producer and editor music comes from d.a wallach And thanks to EBD Group and Presage Biosciences for sponsoring The Long Run. Next on The Long Run, 
Stefan von Sell is the CEO of Moderna Therapeutics, the company trying to make messenger RNA molecules into drugs. This company has raised a couple billion dollars and attracted more than its share of controversy over the years. Hear von Sell talk about his experience, his influences along the way, and how he responds to the critics. Don't miss this next episode of The Long Run.